Well, this morning we have the honor and privilege of hearing from Philip Pattison, who is the founder of Foster the City. And um, I've known Philip for quite some time. Uh, Shannon and I actually knew Philip's wife before we even knew him. Um, she was connected with our, our church in Pacifica. And so um, one time, right after we moved here to the Bay Area, we're sitting at a table with Philip and um, just hearing this vision and this dream uh, that God had given him to start an organization that helps connect churches with foster families and foster kids. And so we're like, that's awesome. We want to start praying for you. And fast forward about a year later, Shannon and I were in Georgia at a conference, and we heard a sermon um, on James 1 that we're going to be hearing t today. Um, and our hearts were just burdened for what it looked like for local churches to dive in and be involved in caring for foster children. So we came back and I said, we have got to call Philip. I wonder if he started this thing that he was talking about a year ago. And so um, sure enough, we were at uh, an event that weekend and Philip was seated at our table. And we we're like, yes, we want to talk to you. Like, have you started this thing that you told us about a year ago? And sure enough, he had. Uh, he had started Foster the, the Bay at the time, um, and so we were so excited to get to talk to him more about what it meant for our local church to partner with him and what God had called him to do. And so uh, we have been partnered with Foster the City now um, for a couple years now, and um, it's just been an amazing partnership, not only us with the organization, but us with other local churches that are also doing this same thing. And so. And we are, are so excited to have Philip come and share with us this morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, so good to be with you. I just have to say, it's in my notes, but I was here, I got a chance to speak here at Santa Cruz Baptist before the pandemic. So it's a couple years ago. It's crazy how you guys have grown. It's incredible. Um, I've been hearing great things about this church, but th things are exploding here. And that, I just think it's amazing to see. And this has been like a, an absolute blessing to just to be able to be here to worship with you all and pray with you all this morning. So thanks for having me. Um, but as Pastor Drew said, my name is Philip, and um, I'm with Foster the City. About seven years ago, my wife and I became foster parents. Um, and at the time, um, I was pastoring a, a small church over the hill in San Jose. Um, and we decided, hey, let's, let's get our church involved as well. And so we just came up with some different ways that as a, as a church community, we could start engaging in foster care. Um, and so what we did was we started to build some relationships with social workers. And that led to a conversation at one point the social worker uh, just sat me down and said, hey, we're happy to partner with your church, this is great. Um, but she said, the reality is, is right now, and this is the term she used, right now we're in an emergency crisis. She said, there are more kids coming into foster care because of abuse, because of neglect, then there are homes that are ready for them. Um, and she said that the, the crisis is just a little bit bigger than your church. Um, and she said, do you think that there are other churches that maybe want to come together and, and become a faith alliance? That was what she said. Would you start a faith alliance of churches to help us address this crisis? Um, and so long story short, we said, we said yes, and that's what Foster the City is today. It's really just a response to this invitation from social workers here in the Bay Area to come in and, and, and care for vulnerable kids in our community. And um, it's been one of the greatest joys of my life watching churches and leaders like Santa Cruz Baptist, like Drew and Shannon, say yes to this invitation and, and, and to jump head first. And what's so cool uh, is a after a few years, this coalition, this alliance of churches grew across the Bay Area, um, but 
because of what churches like Santa Cruz Baptist are doing, families like Julian and Chris Davis, what you all are doing, that's, that's catching the attention of leaders and churches around the country. Because um, what started with one church six years ago when we started is now almost 200 churches. Um, and so churches and leaders around the country are seeing what God's doing through Bay Area churches. And now doors are opening for us to extend our coalition outside of the Bay and into other places where there's similar needs. So just this last year, we, we launched in Southern California where they manage the largest population of foster youth in the country. There are more foster kids in LA County than in any entire state in the country. And so churches are now stepping forward and helping. Uh, this last fall, we saw the coalition grow into Northern Nevada where there were literally zero beds, not one, zero beds available for kids coming into foster care in, in Reno and, and Washoe County. Um, and so churches saw what are, are, what are happening, what's happening in the Bay Area, and they said, we want in, we want to be a part of that too. And so we're seeing, so I, I say all that not to just talk about the growth of Foster the City, I say that to say thank you to you. Because again, this is happening because pastors like Drew and, and families like the Davises are stepping forward, advocates like Melissa are stepping forward, and it's catching the attention of people all around. And so I want to honor you. Um, actually, I want to just, a couple things. Um, I want to I honor Juliana and Chris. Where, where are you guys? Yeah, so all the way in the back. Okay, I so said Chris back. Okay. Um, there are hundreds of families like the Davises that have stepped forward. And I, I just got to tell you, uh, they, they rave about this church. Our, our social workers, our team raves about this church. I want to read something to you actually real fast. Uh, the Davises don't know this. But uh, we got, a, we got an, an, a text from the social worker here in Santa Cruz County that works directly with them. And I just want to read this to you, just to be able to celebrate the incredible work they're doing. This is what this, this social worker sent to one of our team members. He said, I was, I was thinking about you all this morning. He said, I wanted to tell you what a gift Juliana and Chris have become to us. Santa Cruz social workers. What a gift Juliana and Chris have become to us. They are suddenly completely indispensable. Everything we could possibly want in an emergency foster family. That's a government agency talking about a Christian family that stepped into this world. Isn't that awesome? Um, and then I also want to take a, just a quick minute and I want to celebrate Drew. And I just want to honor you publicly. A lot of you probably don't know this, but in addition to Drew and Shannon jumping like saying, hey, we want to be a part of this. Like, let's get our church involved in some way. We know kids matter to God. And in, a, in addition to Drew pouring into his family, pouring into this church, a lot of you probably don't know, but he also volunteers several hours a month for Foster the City. And so what he, he'll do is, and I know over the last two, like six weeks or so, Drew has already met with about a half a dozen pastors in the Santa Cruz County, being a catalyst to help more churches get involved. So he sat down with pastors over coffee and he's brought them resources, he's encouraged them, he's prayed with them, he's brainstormed with them about ways that they could see this move forward in their own churches. So he's not only mobilizing this church community, this congregation, he's acting as a catalyst across Santa Cruz County to other churches. And so Drew, I want to thank you and I want to honor you for that. Um, um, but listen, I, in the last six years since we started doing all this, um, I've, I've had the chance to just like, sit down with like, hundreds of pastors over the, and, and, and share with them uh, what God's doing. And I'll, I'll tell you, not one single solitary time not one time have I had to convince a pastor that, that this matters to God, that this work matters. Because if you open up the scriptures, it is crystal clear that there are some people on this planet that have a special place in God's heart. Amen. God loves, <laughs> he loves the world, right? 
But he, there are some people that have a special place in his heart. And it's the orphan, and it's the widow, it's the, the sojourner, the, the immigrant, and it's the poor. It's those who are without a family, those who are far from home, those who are without a voice, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, those who are in need. Those who are vul- they have a special place in God's heart, and it's all throughout the scriptures. God cares deeply, deeply for them. In fact, Jesus would at one point in his ministry, uh, he, would, he, would, he would say, whatever you do for the least of these, you've, you've done it to me. Jesus identified with the poor. Jesus identified with the vulnerable. Jesus identified with the fatherless. He identified with the outcast and the son. He identified with us. And he said, whatever you do for them, it's like you're doing it directly for me. Jesus, uh, as many of you know, had an earthly brother, a guy named James. And uh, James would go on to write a book that would talk about what it means to live like Jesus. And uh, I think it's fascinating because James had not just a, a public view, or a view of Jesus' public ministry, but had a front row seat to how Jesus lived behind closed doors. For decades, as his brother, he got to see him in public and in private, out doing ministry and at home, behind those closed doors. And so James would write a book, and he would say, okay, so you, you want to be a follower of Jesus. You want to live like him. You want to care about the things he cares about. You want to reflect him. Let me tell you what that looks like. You're going to be a person of compassion. You're going to be a person that cares about the vulnerable. And so I want to, I want to take a, a few minutes. We've already read a little bit of it in, our, in our, the first reading this morning. Um, but in James chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there with me. We're going to start in verse 23. And we're going to just look at a few verses together where James says this to us. This is what he says, starting in verse 23. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. And they go to verse 27 with me. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Two things James gives us here. He tells us our mission and our motivation. That's what I'm going to point out today. Okay? He tells us what we're called to do and he tells us why we're called to do it. Um, but I know that I've already lost some of you okay? because in, I, in this mission, G, James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion, that's, I just dropped kind of a dirty word in our culture. In the Western culture, we hate that word religion, right? Uh, in our culture, like we'll, we're happy to say, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? Uh, I have faith, I'm not really, in the Christian culture, it's, it's a relationship, it's not religion. And that's fine, I mean, we know what you mean there. But when James is using the word religionary, he's not talking ritual, he's not talking cathedral, he's not talking stained glass windows, or even Sunday mornings. When, when, when James used the word religion here, religion that God sees as pure and acceptable, pure and undefiled, he's basically just talking about the outworking of what's inside of us. I gotta stay here. I'm, I'm, I'm a mover, so you might have to nudge me back up. The, the, the outward expression of what's true on the inside. That's what religion is. It's the outward expression of what's most fundamentally, intrinsically, essentially true of what's inside. The reality is we all have deeply held beliefs, fundamental worldviews, right? That, 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 that determine our outlook on life, that help us to make sense of the world around us, right? That, that, that help to guide us in the decisions we make and the values that we have and the way that we spend our life. We all have these deeply held beliefs, all of us. 
right? That's what, that's what he's talking about. If it, so Christianity is a religion. <laughs> so is Hinduism. So is Buddhism, right? But so is secularism. So is naturalism, like these deeply held beliefs that dictate how we live our life. So all, all that James is basically saying here is this. He's saying, follower of Jesus, when you are living outwardly incongruent, in alignment with who you truly are in Jesus now, then you are going to be a person to, where two things are true about you. Not one, but two. Two things are going to be true about you. You're going to care about the vulnerable and you're going to live unstained from the world. Two things. Now, that might seem kind of obvious, kind of simple, but if, if I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us might struggle with one or both of these things. And I'll give you an example, and this is going to put me at the risk of kind of offending somebody, so I apologize. Um, I know I don't know you all, and I don't know where you stand on some of this stuff, but I'm just going to give it a shot. Here we go. Um, let me tell you why this is, this is a, a revolutionary idea then and even now. James says here, he says, a follower of Jesus is going to understand that they have a social moral responsibility, so caring for the vulnerable, and a personal moral responsibility, okay, as an individual, morality, holiness, personal holiness. Here's why I think this is a little bit revolutionary, okay, and again, give me, give me some grace here. <laughs> this is a sweeping overgeneralization that I'm about to make, a sweeping overgeneralization. But sometimes folks on the right side of the aisle, we all okay? Folks on, <laughs> folks on the right side, sometimes folks on the right are going to really understand the personal moral responsibility piece, like traditional values, personal holiness, traditional family values. Like we get that piece of it. But then when it comes to maybe the social moral responsibility, we're going to be a little more open-handed. Okay? This is, this is my money. This is my personal freedom. These are my rights. Like, I, I get, I, personally, individually, I need to have a, you know, values and, and tr tradition. But over here, don't, don't tell me that I owe this to someone else over here. Okay? We all okay? The sweeping over generalization, I get it. Now, on the flip side, if you go on the left side of the aisle, there's going to be oftentimes an embrace of like communal responsibility, social response, right? Social justice, community engagement. We get that piece of the social moral responsibility, but don't say anything about personal objective morality. Like I'll live my life the way that I want to live my life. Yes, I have a responsibility to my neighbor out here, but I'm going to do me. All right, I'm going to. I'll, I'll be my. I'll be who I want to be. I'll live how I want to live. Don't tell me how to live my life. Okay. But James says, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's got to be both. The reality is we have both a social moral responsibility and a personal moral responsibility. The way of Jesus is not the way of the Democrat. It's not the way of the Republican. The reality is Jesus has a much higher view of our personal moral responsibility. He has a much higher view of personal holiness, and he has a much higher view of social responsibility than both the Democrat and the Republican. You follow me? Are we together? Okay, so he's, James is saying we have to care about the vulnerable, and we have to live unseen from the world. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. Your personal holiness matters to God, but so does the way we treat our neighbor. Jesus has a higher view of personal morality than the right and a higher view of social responsibility than the left. And I love that, I love that James talks about these two, these two ideas like actually in the same sentence. Like they're, they're inextricably linked ideas. They're, they're married to one another. 
And, and, and Jesus tells us the very same thing. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus tells us that we're to be salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. His followers are to be salt of the earth. And there's a, there's a couple things I think that he might mean by that. But uh, for one thing, salt makes things better, right? You put salt on something, it just brings out the flavor. It makes things better. Um, and I think that's how we're supposed to be, right? Like, we're, we're, supposed, to, we're supposed to make things better. Like, our, our, our homes, our communities, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. Like, when we come in, like, we're supposed to make, make them better. Our, our, our neighborhood should be better because we're there. The parties that we go to should be better because we're there. Like, our, our, our workplaces should be better. We, we, our company should do better because we're there. I think, I think that's, that's part of it. But I actually think it goes deeper than that when Jesus says we're to be salt of the earth. Salt in Jesus' day was primarily used as a preservative. Right? They didn't have refrigeration and freezers and such in Jesus' day. right? So if you had this big slab of meat and you didn't want the meat to immediately go bad, you would just douse the thing with salt. And so you put salt into to, to that which ordinarily breaks down and decays, and it would keep it from breaking down. So you, it, would, it would keep it whole. And I think that's what Jesus is telling you and I to do as well. Like we are to go into things and to places and to relationships, systems that are breaking down, and we're to bring healing and to bring wholeness. That's what we're called to do. But Jesus, right after he says, you're to be salt of the earth, he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, that's really not worth anything. Did you know that that salt can't lose its saltiness on its own? There's no like expiration date for salt. So the only way that salt can actually lose its saltiness is if something from outside comes in and pollutes it and corrupts it, defiles it. You follow me? So the question then is, like what, if we're to keep ourselves unseen from the world, undefiled, uncorrupted, like what is it that the world is sending our way? Like what, how do we get stained by the world? And I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll tell you from my experience, perhaps the most persistent attractive, alluring message that the world sends my way is that my life is all about me. I was just talking with, about, with, with Courtney about this before the service today. How this is our, like, this is so fundamental to our, our the, kind of the American worldview is your life is all about you. You should pursue first and foremost your comfort your security, your safety, your well-being. It's about, it's, this is about my pleasure and my happiness and my safety and my security and my home and my kids and my country and my money. This is about me. But listen to me, please. Like surely, surely the vision that you have for your life is more than just getting to the finish line as comfortable and safe as possible. Can we, can we stop? Can, can I can we pause and just reflect on that for a minute? I'm going to say that again. Can, I, I, can we lean into that? I, surely the vision and the dream that you have for your life and the vision and dream that I have for my life is more, it's more than just getting to the finish line as comfortable and safe as possible. The Apostle Paul, he says, no, 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 no. He says, he says, have the same attitude as that of Jesus, who though he was God, he was God in essence. He was God himself. 
did not cling to that, but he became a servant. And he laid down his life for us. He says, that's, that's, the, atti- that's the attitude, that's the mindset that we are to have. And James is saying that the more that we live into that, the more that we have this attitude towards one another and towards the vulnerable, the more that the gospel is going to be on display to a watching world. The more that we're going to be able to paint this beautiful, undefiled, pure, potent picture of the gospel to a watching world. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, he said, he said, the world does not need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration. And James says, this is what we give the world when we visit the orphan and widow in distress. Um, when James says, visit orphans and widows, he's not suggesting that we're to like swing by and say hi. It's not that kind of visit. All right? It basically means we're to go where they, where they are. We're to go to them. Our natural instinct, at least mine, is to go the opposite direction of hard things. I, I want to turn away from something that's hard. But James says, no, no, no. Like we're to actually move towards those who are hurting and those who are in need. Um, and, and the tense of the, the word visit there means that this is to be our habitual, ongoing, consistent practice. So this isn't just some single, like, isolated act of charity, um, but it's actually to be a part of what we do consistently with our life. It's like a part of who we are now. This is a part of my DNA. It's a part of the DNA of this church. Like, we are a church that not just once or twice a year, but we are a church that moves. It's part of our character as a church is we, we move towards hard things. Um, and we've, we've seen this lived out in a, in a thousand different ways through Foster the City, just like in the Davis family. I could just tell you story after story after story this morning about how we've seen this being lived out in, in churches and in families, um, just like Santa Cruz Baptist. Um, uh, let me tell you about my friend Jordan. Jordan and his wife, Becca, live over the hill in San Jose. And um, a few years ago, I met him and, and got to know him. And he, they were just about to enter into their empty nesting years. And... Jordan was stoked about all kinds of things that they were going to be doing. Their daughter was just about to graduate high school, and then he and his wife were going to do some traveling. And, uh, you know, he was looking forward to spending some time with his wife, and he was even thinking about writing a book. And then they came to one of our interest meetings. Um, and they, he started to learn about the kids that were in their community in Santa Clara County that were in desperate need of, of some help. And, uh, and so they... Um, they, just, they, they took the classes and they got licensed and they started welcoming in kids into their home. And at one point, a couple of years ago, um, Jordan uh, said, hey, Phil, there's this little girl uh, that's in our home now. And turns out she's not going to be able to go back home to her biological family. She needs a new forever family. And he said, I can't believe it, but we're about to start over as parents. Um, so they took in this little girl, three or four years old at the time, and started over. Just press pause on all their empty nesting plans and started over. So last year, I remember uh, I was sitting, about ready to go into a meeting, but um, their adoption ceremony was on Zoom. And I was sitting there with my, in, my, in my car with watching the, their adoption ceremony on my phone, just tears streaming down my face. As I listened to Jordan tell this little girl that they were adopting, tell this little girl how much of a blessing she's been to their family. Not just the ways that they've been able to, to encourage and invest and bless her, but what a blessing she's been to them. You know, and this is in my notes, but in verse 25, James says um, something to the effect of, if, if you're not just a hearer who forgets, but you're a doer who acts, you'll be blessed in your doing. You'll be blessed. That's what he's talking about. You're going to be able to experience those, those blessings. There's, an, there's another woman in the East Bay. Um, 
similar to Jordan and, and, and Becca, they, they were, she was about to enter into her retirement years. And she was gonna, they were going to go traveling, she and her husband, and, and had all these plans. And again, they uh, came to a meeting and heard about some of these kids in need. And so they, they pa pressed pause and they got licensed and they welcomed in this teenage boy into their home. And they actually did do some traveling last year, she told me. Um, she said they took this boy, this teenage boy, to Florida because that's where his biological family lives. So that they could, so that he could work on building that relationship with his biological family. She told, she told my, my wife and me, she said, she said, this hasn't been easy by any stretch of the imagination. This has been really hard. She said, but this has undoubtedly been one of the greatest things I've ever done with my life. She said, I, she said, I know I can't change the world or anything. She said, but I can sure do something for this, little, this boy in front of me. Um, I'll tell you about my friend Lindsay, who is at, at, uh, at my church. Um, uh, in 2019, I got, an, I got an email from a social worker in Santa Clara County, and she she told us about this little boy who is six years old. Uh, and she said, Philip, there's this six-year-old little boy who has significant medical challenges. Like I, like, I can't overstate that. Incredible. I've never heard anything like incredible medical challenges. And she said, um, he's, we've had him living in the hospital for eight months because we have nowhere to send him. Not because he can't be released, but because they had no family to send him to. So he's been living in the hospital in Santa Clara County for eight months. She said, do you think there are any families in the Foster City community that would be open to taking him? So we sent a word out in 2019 to some families. And uh, almost right away, there was a family in my church. Her name was, her name was Lindsay. It was the mom. She wrote, she wrote me back the, this email that I sent out. And she said, Philip, she said, I, after reading this email, she said, I almost heard audibly God say, go get your son. Um, and so... so uh, so they, did, they, they weren't even licensed foster parents at the time. They went and got licensed. They rushed the process. Um, they, they brought this little boy home, and they turned their life upside down. She quit her job. She, I mean, uh, and for the last two and a half years, I wish I could show you. I can't because of a lot of privacy pieces at this point with this story. I wish I could tell you a whole lot more details. But I wish you could see the transformation. This, this boy, couldn't, he couldn't get out of bed on his own. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. Um, by the time that this two and a half years down the road, he's a completely different boy. Going to school, running, loves to tell jokes. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, last year, I had the opportunity again to, to, to sit in and watch their adoption ceremony. As, as, and she told this little boy, she said, there will not be one more day where you will live without a, a safe and loving family. There will not be one more day where you will not have a safe and loving family. Um, oh, can I tell you one more? I could just keep going all, all morning. Can I tell you one more? This one's close to home. All right. Um, so the second little girl that we brought into our uh, family, her name was Karina. She, uh, she too was six years old. Um, and we had her for just about six months. And it was really hard. She'd been through some pretty hard things. And so sometimes when, when we go through hard things, we act out of hard things, right? We all do that. We all act out of the trauma that we've experienced. Uh, and for her, she'd experienced quite a bit. And... Um, it was really hard. And we, my wife and I just felt like we were continually failing this little girl. I remember at one point in my pastor's office just crying and crying, just saying, I just feel like I'm, we're not helping her. And I feel like we failed. And just, I said, I suck at this fostering thing, sorry. Um, and, um, and it was hard, but, but it was a thousand percent worth it. Let me tell you why. Um, partway into fostering Karina, um, one day we had to, to take her to a visit. Every week 
you go to a couple of visits, they go to a couple of visits with their biological family to stay connected. And so we we dropped Karina off to have a visit with her mom, and the rest of my family drove down the street to a restaurant to grab dinner. We had dinner, come out to our car. Our tires had been slashed on our car. I don't know why or who still, but that, that they were. But we were like, shoot, we got to get Karina. And so we called our friend, our, one of our support friends. Her name was Jean, who lived not too far away. And we said, Jean, is there any way you can go get Karina? Um, and so she dropped what she was doing and drove down to go pick up Karina from her visit. Well, while she, while she was there, Jean got into a conversation with uh, Karina's mom. Her name was Tracy. And what sparked there was a friendship between Jean and Tracy. Um, and so it wasn't long after that that Karina ended up going back home to her family, being reunited with her family. But that friendship between Jean and Tracy continued to grow. And at one point early on in their friendship, Jean invited Tracy to come to our church. He said, hey, come, come and be a part of our community and get some support and some love and some care as you guys are kind of rebuilding as a family. And she said yes. And so she brought her family to our church. And for the last five years, they've had a church community with us in San Jose where they found this, the, the, the security and the, and the investment that, they, that we all need, that we all need. Um, and a couple of years into that, Tracy, Karina's mom, um, placed her faith in Jesus. We got to baptize her on, on Easter Sunday, a few years ago, 2019. Uh, and then just a couple months ago, I got an email from Tracy saying, hey, Philip, um, our sweet Karina, uh, she's placed her faith in Jesus and she's been begging to be baptized and we'd love for you to, to do that. And so as a 12-year-old now, I don't know if we have the picture here or not. We do. That's Karina. And uh, I had the privilege of, of baptizing her. I think it was November of this last year. Um, after, after that Sunday, when we got to be a part of that, my, my, my wife and I got in the car, and my wife looked over at me, and she said, Philip, she said, this is easily one of the greatest days of my life. She said, I felt like God just gave us a little glimpse of heaven. I like we got a little peek into what heaven's going to be like. And um, um, Jean, who was, she was there as well, one who invited Tracy and her family. Jean told my wife that day, she said, you know, if somebody were to walk up to me and hand me a million dollars, I would not be happier than I am right now in this moment. If anyone is a doer who acts, not just a hearer, but a doer who acts, you'll be blessed in your doing. That's what James is talking about. It's not always easy. In fact, it's oftentimes really, really hard but you'll be blessed in your doing. I could just keep going with stories. I'll, I'll. But let, 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 me, let, me, let me shift to this. The more, that, the more that I've been involved in this kind of world of foster care, the more that I'm beginning to understand about the importance of attachment for a child. Okay, hang with me. The importance of attachment for a child. Listen, so there's a lot of young families in here um, I love actually how many kids were here, especially in the first part of the service. It's really neat to listen. Like that's the sounds of the kingdom, guys. That's the sound of the kingdom. It's beautiful. God loves kids. Um, Jesus said, let the kids come. That's, that's the sounds of the kingdom. I love that. It's beautiful. I hope that doesn't change here. Um, so, but you, you moms and you dads, okay? When, you're, when your young one cries, when your little one cries and reaches out for help and you come and you you pick up that little baby into your arms and you, you, you meet that child's need. You, you, feed, you feed her, you, you hold her close, you, you make her warm. When you meet the needs of that child, there's some things that are firing off in that child's brain that we're learning about. There's some things that are being affirmed for that child. There's, there's three things that we're learning are being affirmed for them in that young age. Number one, I'm loved. Number two, 
I'm valuable, I matter, and number three, I can trust you. That's what we're learning about attachment in a child's brain. So when you, that child cries, you meet that child in their need, and you hold them close, and you meet that need, they're being told, I'm loved, I'm valuable, and I can trust you. On the flip side, when a child doesn't get that need met, they're, they're, they cry out and they're met with neglect, or they cry out, maybe it's met with frustration or with anger, the inverse is affirmed. I must not be loved. I must not matter. I can't trust anyone. And what we're seeing, it's been so beautiful, families like the Davises, and others, I, I don't know if I can mention it publicly, others here who are taking steps toward becoming foster parents, um, who, are, who are turning their lives upside down to reinforce to, to kids like Karina here. Oh, no, 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 no. You, you are loved. You matter. And there are people you can trust. And more importantly, there's a God you can trust. Amen. And do, do you know how they can do that? Do you know how their families like the Davises can do that? People like Jordan and Becca, my friend Lindsay, you know how people can do that? Because they understand that this is our story too. This isn't just Karina's story. This is our story. In James 24, uh, one twenty, excuse me, James one twenty-four. Like I told you, he doesn't just tell us our mission; he also tells us our motivation. He basically says, "I'm going to paraphrase this." He says, "If your life isn't being shaped into somebody that cares deeply for the vulnerable, perhaps it's because you're forgetting who you are. Perhaps you're forgetting that this is your story. You're like a person who looks at a mirror, and then when you walk away, you immediately forget what you look like." What does he mean by that? Well, what do mirrors do? For better or for worse, they, they show us what we look like. <laughs> they show us who we are. They show us our true reality, right? James says if you're, if you're not living a life of compassion and self-giving love, you're forgetting who you are. We love others because we have been loved. When you open up the Bible, the story of God throughout history has been a pursuit of attachment. We just talked about the attachment in a child's brain. I think that when you open up the scriptures, that, that's, that's what God has been trying to affirm to you and me all throughout the thousands of years of history. He's been trying to show us in a thousand different ways. Oh, don't you see? I love you. You matter to me and you can trust me. Time and time and time and time again. Open up the Bible. You'll see it time and again. The, the story of God is the story of God hearing us in our need, meeting us in that need and just trying to reaffirm for us. Don't you see? I love you. You are valuable. You can trust me. In the garden, God goes and he meets the man and the woman. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes and he finds them. He meets them in their need. And he clothes them and he gives them a hope for their future. Right? Hagar and, and, and her son. Remember, they're in the wilderness and the babies, the, the child is crying out. It says that God hears the cries of the child and he goes to the child and he, he meets them in their need. And he gives them a promise and he gives them a hope for their future. When the Israelites are enslaved, right, in, in Egypt, he hears their cries, he hears their groans, and he goes and he meets them in their need and he fights for them, he delivers them, and he gives them a hope for their future. When the people are exiled because of their sin, God hears their cries and he hears their groans, and he goes and he meets them and he brings them back home. He brings them home and he gives them a hope for their future. We could go on and on and on all throughout the story of the scriptures. It's this pursuit of attachment to you and to me. When Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, hears that the Messiah has finally come, Jesus is finally on his way, 
The Savior has come. Zechariah, he, he, he cries out. He, he, this is what he says. He says, praise God because he has visited and redeemed his people. That word visit is the, is the same word that, that James uses in James 1. So in other words, Jesus has visited us in our distress. He's visited us in our affliction. He didn't keep his distance from our brokenness. He didn't turn the other way. But he came near. He, he approached us. He laid down his life for us. We might have healing and hope for our future in a thousand different ways. God has been trying to tell you. So please, will you, will you, will you, just, will you receive this today? You are loved. He loves you. And you matter to him. And you can trust him. In a thousand different ways, God's been trying to tell you that. He's been trying to tell me that. And, and what James is saying is that perhaps the best and most vivid, most beautiful, most pure, most undefiled way that we can share that unbelievable good news with the world, that we are loved and valued by God, that we have a trustworthy God, is by sharing that same love, reflecting that same love to those around us. Romans 15 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So how's God leading you to do that today? Perhaps it's just by moving towards that person, that relationship, where there's been some difficulty, some challenge. It's moving towards that friend or that neighbor that's been struggling. It's, it's by shifting some of the ways maybe you're spending your time and your, your resources, your, your gifts. Um, or as Melissa said earlier, Maybe it's by learning about Foster the City. Maybe God might be stirring in your heart to get involved in some way. There's a bunch of different ways you can be involved. For, for um, a few of you, that might actually mean explore looking into becoming a foster parent. There is a profound need for more families to step forward to welcoming kids who have walked through hard things. There's a profound need in Santa Cruz County and across the Bay Area for more families to step forward. There are kids waiting for a family to say yes, and maybe that's you. Um, for, for most of you, that's probably not you. Um, so you can breathe. All right. For most of you, that's probably not you. But for a few of you, it might be. Um, for, the, for those of you, for the rest of you, there is a way that you can still make a difference, though. There's a role that you can play. As Melissa said, um, for every foster family, we want to raise up a team of support friends. Uh, nationally, uh, only about 40% of foster families will make it past their first year. 50 to 60% will drop out within the first year because it's really, really hard. Uh, it's hard to parent alongside a government agency. It's hard to care for kids that have come from hard places sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. It's, it's hard to say goodbye when they go back home. Rips your heart out. Okay? It's difficult to do this. But for foster the city families, more than 90% make it past their first year. Do you know why? Well, I think two reasons. Number one, the well from which we're dipping is a gospel-centered love. We're not doing it to fill a, 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 a gap in our family. We're not doing it to get a child. We want say this, that, that you don't foster to get a child for your family. You foster to give your family to a child. See the difference? Right? It's, it's, it's the self-giving love that we've experienced from Jesus. But the, but the second reason is this, is that for every, every family that steps forward, we wrap them with the practical, emotional, spiritual support that they need. We all need to do things like this, hard things like this, in community. We're just praying about it, weeping with those you know, who, who are weeping and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. Right? We're called to do these hard things in community. And so it, maybe it's you stepping forward as a support friend. You could, you know, child care, yard work, 
uh, bringing meals, prayer, encouragement, just taking that journey in the context of community. Maybe that's something you're interested in. If you're interested in any way to get involved as a, as a foster parent, a support friend, you just want to learn more. As Melissa said, there is a meeting coming up here in just a couple weeks. Um, if you go to the back table and fill out one of those cards, like Melissa said, you're not signing in blood. We're not dropping kids off to your house this afternoon. We're, we're just, we're going to email you. That's it. You'll get an email. Okay. We'd love to be able to, to, to share that. That way, if March 5th doesn't work, we've got a whole lot of other meetings that you can attend as well. Okay. And I'll just tell you, um, I didn't realize the church was this size now, but I, um, I was, I, this week I was praying for five households to attend. There'll be, there'll be folks from other churches in the area as well that will be a part of that interest meeting. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start praying for more than five households to, to attend. Um, but perhaps God is leading you not to, not to make a commitment, but are you willing to give one hour? Would you give just one hour to learn more? That, that's the, that's the, the challenge I want to give to you. Let me close with this. The Christian life can be summed up in seven words. Ready? We should have started with this, right? Saved us a lot of time. The Christian life can be summed up in seven words. Here it is. We love because Christ first loved, first loved us. I butchered that. Let me say it one more time. We love because Christ first loved us. That's it. You're his child. He loves you. You matter to him. And you can trust him. And may... May those truths create in you and in me an unshakable foundation of peace and confidence and joy. And may they serve as a motivation for a life of self-giving love and compassion to a world that is in desperate need of some hope. Amen? In the words of St. Teresa, she says, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours.